You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Everybody. My name is Val Petrova. I'm the Outreach Coordinator for the Ellison Center. Thank you all for coming today. I'm just going to mention that on the table here we have um, some flyers that have uh, a list of our the rest of our talks for this quarter, and we do have several more, including tomorrow where Dr. Amber, uh, Dr. Uh, Abramson is going to talk about Central Asia's regional challenges, so take a look at that. It's going to be at 2.30 in uh, Simpson Center 218D, which is just uh, two doors that way. So please come and uh, hear his talk about that as well. But for today, I'm going to turn it over to Professor Katie Pierce, who's going to introduce Dr. Anderson. Great. Thanks, Val. So welcome, everybody, um, especially those of you that aren't necessarily uh, affiliated with the Ellison Center that have come to join us from different departments and um, from Jackson School. So great. Come to more of our events, please. Uh, so I wanted to introduce uh, Dr. Aver David Abramson. He uh, is a cultural anthropologist by training. He received his PhD from Indiana University. Uh, he will tell us all about how he accidentally ended up becoming an analyst at the State Department, where he has been since 2005 working on Central Asia. Um, uh, interestingly, Dr. Abramson uh, also has taken um, opportunities to work at places like Wilson Center. So he's not uh, locked up in the State Department all day long. He will take time to go out and be affiliated with other institutions and organizations. Um, he also uh, has some incredible publications. For those of you that are interested in Central Asia, he is very well published and um, is certainly considered one of the most important people working, um, in particular on Uzbekistan. So even though today is a career talk and you're going to be hearing about his life as an anthropologist inside the State Department, he also is an esteemed scholar. So don't forget that when you're uh, eagerly asking questions about you know, how much money you can make working <laughs> intelligence or uh, those sort of things. So with that, I would like to introduce uh, David Abramson, and thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today. Thank you very much. So um, as Katie mentioned, um, I'd like to sort of give my uh, career trajectory to give those of you who, um, whether you're, you're committed to an academic career in future or not, uh, just to give you a sense of how someone could actually uh, fall into uh, other related work. But also, um, with, um, since I've continued to have strong intellectual and academic interests in the region, uh, that I've been able to continue to do that while working at the State Department with uh, work on the side. Uh, it's not easy because time-wise, but there are ways to do that. Um, so um, I think there are a lot of paths uh, to uh, different work on the region in Washington, um, but um, this is just an example, and I just wanted to use that to tell you about that today. And then the second part of the talk will be sort of some of the uh, challenges and interest, some interesting aspects of what it's like to apply a social science discipline 
or work around it within a, an institution that is not designed. Um, and often, uh, if you say, if you mention the word anthropology, they don't even know what you're talking about. So um, maybe a slight exaggeration there, but uh, I'll, I'll provide some details about what I mean. And I think uh, I, I, the, the idea is that some of this applies beyond anthropology, assuming that most of you are not anthropologists or budding anthropologists. Uh, I think it, it also applies to other disciplines as well. So the, the first part I want to talk about how I got there. Um, and uh, I first started studying uh, in graduate school in 1991 at uh, Indiana University, a PhD program in cultural anthropology. I had studied Russian language and literature as a major as an undergrad, so I had the Russian language skills. Uh, I became interested in Central Asia when studying on a semester abroad in Moscow. We had some trip, tra uh, trips to other republics, so this was still in the Soviet Union in 1986, and I was really intrigued that the Soviet Union was not as homogenous as I had imagined from my um, somewhat naive, distant, uh, remote uh, view as uh, growing up here in the United States. So I became interested in nationality issues and through a number, for a number of uh, reasons, decided to focus on Central Asia and in particular Uzbekistan uh, for the early part of my career. Um, so I, I, did, I did my PhD working in Uzbekistan. I was there in 1994-95, looking at how community and identity was transforming in the early years after the breakup of the Soviet Union. And I was looking at it through the lens of this uh, urban neighborhood, uh, Mahala, um, and uh, how that was changing uh, in, in, the, in those early years. Uh, after my PhD, I did a postdoc and extended for a couple more years. So I spent four years at Brown University's Watson Institute for International Studies. And um, right up to almost the end of that postdoc, I was focused on an academic career. I thought I was going to teach anthropology, cultural anthropology uh, in some academic department. Um, and that's what I had been planning to do all along. And that's for most people in anthropology and many other uh, disciplines, uh, we, that's what the expectation of PhD students um, and, and including, so there's, there's not a lot of training beyond that in most uh, departments, at least that was, that was the case in the 90s. I, I don't think that's changed a lot. So, but I found myself in a uh, Institute of International Studies and <laughs> where I was thrown in with people of other disciplines, mostly international relations, but also other areas of political science and sociology and demography and development studies. And that sort of started to shape the way that I was looking at Central Asia um, and the kind of questions that I was asking. So I started to look at the, the, the politics and culture of foreign assistance to Central Asia. It was also timely because that was just emerging in those uh, immediate post-Soviet years in the 90s. And I remember going to the first NGO conference uh, in Tashkent. This was in 95. I didn't know what an NGO was, but NGOs were becoming this buzzword and uh, at that time and something 
part of the uh, in as development studies and, and development programs shifted from state to state aid more towards a paradigm of assisting civil society organizations and non-governmental organizations. And what was uh, interesting at, for me applying this to places like Uzbekistan, uh, a lot of the, the, the terminology just did not translate. But I was looking at what, what, did, what does non-profit mean in a post-socialist society? What did non-governmental mean uh, in a society where the state, at least on the surface, was everywhere and everything, or claimed to be. Um, so looking at the translation of how these, uh, how foreign assistance uh, worked and didn't work on the ground in a place like Uzbekistan. So that drew me out um, into engaging in other disciplinary questions that other disciplines uh, were also engaging in. And at the end of those four years, um, I got a fellowship to go uh, to uh, come to Washington. It's called the American Association of um, AAAS, American Associ um, Association for the Advancement of Science um, uh, fellowships. They had a number of them. They've been around. They've been around since the early 70s. They put congressional fellowships. They now have fellowships for people with mostly with PhDs or equivalent. Uh, to come to Washington for one to two years. Um, if any of you are uh, in a position to uh, apply for that or are interested in it, I can. Uh, you can go to the website, or I can. We can talk about it afterwards with more detail. It's a very well-run program for people with a social science background. Um, there are other ways of, of getting into. Uh, finding government work, other kinds of fellowships, presidential management fellows, uh, Jefferson fellows, some of them for people with PhDs, some with masters, a, a range of programs. And the reason why I'm mentioning all of these is that it's, if you're interested in getting a government job, it's very difficult to get into, especially the State Department, uh, through uh, just by applying to the, on, the government's uh, Office of Personal Management uh, personnel management's uh, uh, USA Jobs site, because a lot of the positions that are advertised are usually slated for somebody else, um, and you won't know that because it's not legal to uh, to mention that. But often the, the the job announcements are written in such a way that only one person is likely to get it. Um, so unless you have some insider information, you're not going to know that. So that's why these fellowship programs are especially valuable. While they're very competitive, um, they're at least they're more transparent. Um, and um, I guess I should should have said at the beginning that <laughs> everything that I say is is or at least are my personal views and not um, and not those of necessarily of the, the U.S. government. Uh, that's going to apply tomorrow too. I'll re-announce that. Um, but I want to just be candid with you, um, as if, if for those of you who are thinking about, they're interested in this. Um, so I got this fellowship, and they don't always. Most of the time, you're not placed in a position, in an office, or a position that is necessarily related to what you've been working on. Um, and this starts to get into uh, touch on the topic of uh, how academic, scholarly expertise is 
used and valued in different agencies in Washington, whether it's in the State Department, intelligence community, or elsewhere. And, um, and as I said, uh, nobody cares that I have a background as an anthropologist. That, that doesn't mean um, a whole lot with given the work. But, but there are ways that I found that it has um, uh, been very helpful for me to do the work that I've done there. Um, and I'll get into that. The first four years, I worked in the Human Rights Bureau on international religious freedom. It puts out a, a report every year on the status of religious freedom in every country in the world. This was very um, controversial within the State Department, privately, because most people there thought of this, uh, this office as a, as a sort of alien uh, put in, uh, mandated by Congress, forcing State Department uh, Foreign Service officers and others to write yet one more report every year. Um, and people who believed that they had already been covering these issues under the, uh, the Human Rights Report. So what was interesting to me was in working in that office where the battles that I had were not with uh, diplomats and officials from other countries. Um, it was often within the State Department that we had struggles uh, because a lot of people felt that any raising religion, any religious issues with another government was interference in internal affairs. So why do we, why does that get defined as interference in internal affairs and something else doesn't? And this as, so this, this is one of the ways that my, my, my anthropology background was helping me to question some of the categories uh, and boundaries that people set um, in, in, in these kinds of uh, uh, arguments. And I'll just give you an example uh, of, of how the, of, 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 of an example of this. Uh, I arrived in the State Department in 2001 and the United States went into Afghanistan um, in October, just, um, just around the same time that I was there. And that following spring, um, under the new Karzai government, there was a lot of discussion about what the new Afghan constitution was going to look like. And there were people at the department who said, we should not be, we, we, they're happy to advise the Karzai government on what the constitution could look like, but we don't say anything about religion or religious freedom. That's interfering in internal affairs. And our argument was, uh, first of all, some people in the, in the Afghan government, the new Afghan government, were asking what we thought about those issues. So do we not respond on that issue, but we respond on others? Um, another thing is that we explained that globally, if the United States is silent on that one issue, people will assume there are a couple of narratives that people uh, will assume, and, and, and even though they, they are contradictory, the same, you'll hear the same person saying them. One is that the United States is a Christianizing force in the world, trying to push Christianity on the rest of the world in certain contexts, um, especially in the religious freedom context. The other one is that the United States is a secularizing force in the world, pushing 
Western immoral culture on the rest of the world. So these two contradictory narratives, which we would hear from the same people in one conversation, um, it didn't make sense. So I would raise these, these questions with uh, my you know, counterparts in other parts of the department who felt uncomfortable just talking about religion. And it's not pushing religion, but explaining this is what the American United States experience with religion historically has been. It's been fraught with conflict. Um, but we have resolved a lot of these issues in, in certain ways. And just sharing that experience is, uh, is really helpful um, uh, with, with other countries. So, um, so, that's, um, so that was a policy job. And I'm going to talk about two different parts of the State Department where I've worked. So in religious freedom, I worked on policy. Um, and for the first four years. And, and what, what do I mean? Policy at the State Department um, is about engaging other parts, other bureaus, other parts of the department, not necessarily country desks and regional bureaus, but people who work on, on human rights and democracy, people who work on maybe uh, population, migration, refugees, uh, or science, science uh, bureaus, um, and coordinating if the Secretary of State or a high-level official is going to have a meeting, they have to come up with talking points. They have to come up with background memos for these people who have to be able to be conversant in a wide range of issues. And coming up with agreeing on common language about how that person can talk about those issues. So writing and the language of, uh, of, of, of these issues is, is, very, is very important. Um, and then coming up with strategies for achieving policy goals, what's reasonable, what isn't, uh, as well as meeting with, uh, with foreign officials. So I, w I went to Bangladesh, Turkey, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia to raise uh, religious freedom issues with uh, officials there. And sometimes I would accompany somebody who was higher level. Um, and so that was a very interesting experience to be sitting in on those meetings um, and seeing how they engaged. Um, you know, Chit chat, were they formal, were they stiff, were they informal? Um, I mean, we, when, we, when we see, you know, hear about the president, President Obama, meeting with Netanyahu, we only get a certain perspective uh, on the meeting as it's presented to the press. Um, and then I shifted. For the last 10 years, I've worked in uh, the Bureau of Intelligence and Research on Central Asia as a Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan analyst. Uh, and the, one of the main differences um, one of the, the divisions between the policy, which is most of the State Department, and analysis is that policymakers are not supposed to tell analysts what to write. Analysts are supposed to have the uh, intellectual freedom to say, this is what I see is going on in Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan, like it or not, and can even say, you know, if the United States pursues policy X, this is how I think the Uzbek government is going to react. But we don't comment, we don't 
say, make recommendations of this is what we should do. And so they don't tell us what to write and we don't rec make policy recommendations unless they ask. And there was occasionally, and this is generally respected, uh, which is a good thing, um, but there have been occasions when, I remember back uh, under the you know, second Bush administration, um, there was some massaging of analysis in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq with respect to weapons of mass destruction. And fortunately, our bureau uh, dissented on other, what the other parts of the intelligence community claimed that there were weapons of mass destruction. And so, um, but we know what happened in the end with that. Um, and occasionally a high level official might scream uh, at an analyst for writing something that he disagreed with or she disagreed with. That's very rare. Um, and usually all the way up the Secretary of State gets wind of it will um, say, don't do that again. So that, that firewall is pretty much, is pretty well respected. Um, so on a daily basis, um, I read everything that I can get my hands on. Uh, it, it can be something of a, like a drinking out of a fire hose of information, staying up on top of daily events. You know, with an, as a, with an academic background, it would be nice if I had, you know, take, could take, you know, some time off, a month, two months, three months, to actually focus on some uh, project in depth. Uh, I don't get that many opportunities to do that, although uh, I did get a year off a sabbatical, a, fel in, a fellowship within the government to, to do exactly that. And that's when I uh, spent a year at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Um, and most analysts, whether at the State Department or elsewhere in the intelligence community, uh, don't take, have those opportunities or take those opportunities. I think you really, it helps to have had a research background and research training to be, have the discipline to work on a project for a whole year. Um, and um, so that, that's one of the ways that I've managed to publish and to continue to have one foot or, or toe in the uh, academic world. I also teach um, uh, every few semesters um, uh, Georgetown courses on Central Asia uh, and, and also occasionally publish. So all that's possible if I can find the time. Um, I also organize a um, a monthly Central Asianist happy hour in Washington. So if, uh, if any of you are planning to be in Washington for an extended period of time, let me know. There are now over 350 people interested in Central Asia. Can you imagine? <laughs> um, uh, in, in, on, the, on the invitation list. And we get once a month 30 to 40 people come from you know, government, academia, journalists, NGOs, uh, people from the read from Central Asia who are working in maybe unrelated areas but have this chance to get together. And I've often said that one of the great things about working in Washington is just like a, a huge Central Asia uh, de department 
without the administrative responsibilities of chairing it or anything like that. So it's, it's a great place to be able to reach out to people and work. And tomorrow I'm going to talk about um, you know, the, the, some of the concern, address the concerns about growing interest or um, you know, in Washington uh, or, 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 the, or the, the decline in interest, potential decline in interest in Washington on this area. And there were a lot of assumptions about uh, a drop off in interest because uh, the US was drawing, uh, having its drawdown in Afghanistan after tw from 2014 on um, that Washington would just lose interest in this region. Um, I'm going to argue that I don't think that's, that's going to be the case. And I'll, if you come tomorrow, you'll hear why. Um, but I will say that one of the advantages of working in an official position in Washington, such as at the State Department, is while I don't get the long-term research opportunities that I once had as an anthropologist, if I were still an anthropologist, I wouldn't have even be able to go for a day in some of the countries in this region. Uzbekistan, increasingly Tajikistan, certainly Turkmenistan, uh, the, the opportunities, the, the openness that, um, the, for research that was once possible has really narrowed. Um, so as a State Department uh, employee, I can go uh, as a, when the, em the embassy will host me um, and they will organize my, all my meetings and take me around. So whereas trying to get two meetings in one day in Tashkent back when I was in my anthropology days was a huge endeavor and just exhausting, um, I can have five or six meetings uh, a day because they, they organize it. Now, are they with the same kinds of people? They're not the same kinds of meetings, naturally. I'm not doing participant observation where I can live and uh, more or less at my leisure, uh, hang out at the local uh, tea house or you know, and talk to people in the neighborhood. But those opportunities are not possible in Uzbekistan um, uh, anymore. And all, most of the academics I know who have tried to go back there you know, 10, 15 years after they did their research, they could only go on a tourist visa. And if they go to any provincial area, the National Security Service folks are going to show up and send them back to Tashkent. And just and that, and that would be the end of that. So um, naturally, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan are a lot more open. But uh, we've seen just in the last few years that in Tajikistan, um, things have gotten a lot tighter, and um, I don't see that changing. So I do have opportunities that I wouldn't have if I were an academic, but there are also some limitations on that. And I'll just say one more, uh, make one more point about that. Uh, when I was doing anthropological field work, spending a whole year in the Fergana Valley in Uzbekistan, I looked at the embassy as this cloistered, a uh, group of people living in a bubble who only, you know, would interact with people on the, you know, their cocktail circuit of elites who spoke English or um, were in this small circle uh, in Tashkent, in the capital, and didn't get out very much. But now that I'm in Washington, they're the ones who are there all the time, 
sending back reports. If any of you have um, uh, read, you know, any of the, the, the wiki, uh, reports uh, leaked on WikiLeaks, and I, I'm not going to talk about that because I can't. Um, uh, you'll see that those reports are probably you'll agree that they're a lot more objective uh, and serious than, for the most part, than I think a, a lot of people actually expected. But um, we can talk about that to, to, uh, on some level. Um, so let me s stop there in terms of the my trajectory. I want to talk a little bit now about um, trying to do uh, apply my my original trade uh, at the State Department and in Washington. Uh, now it's 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 impossible to, to to be an anthropologist as I knew knew and understood anthropology um, at the State Department um, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, as an analyst who reads news reports, uh, social monitors social media conversations. Um, talks to people passing through Washington or, or in diaspora uh, increasingly um, and occasionally makes occasionally trip, occasional trips to the region. Um, uh, I, those are all sources that I look at. Um, I can't, but I, I need to be able to translate what I, um, what I see going on uh, into a language that people can digest uh, without using terms like globalization, hegemony, you know, not uh, narrativization. You know, you could go on and on um, because those require definition. And in an 800-word assessment, you don't have the space to do that. You need to say what is going on. Um, and I found that you can do this. Um, but you have to focus on, and, and it, it's made me think about some of the, the language that, uh, that, I, that academics use, at least in anthropology. Um, in some cases, it's, uh, it can be a crutch um, to be in, in talking around agency and who are the actors and who's doing what. Um, and you're talking about ideas, but we really have to focus on subjects, who's doing what uh, and why. Um, so um, rather than you know, talking about using terms like identity um, and how it's used in different contexts, you just don't have the space to do that. So you're looking at uh, you know, maybe something broad, as broad as an, as an agency like the National Security Service or the president or um, and I admit that I attribute to the president of Uzbekistan more uh, agency than perhaps um, is necessarily warranted in reality, but um, because we don't really know who's making the decisions at every level. Um, um, but also why, um, but one thing that uh, I have, you know, thought a lot about is the, a lot, you know, here I'm working in, for the State Department, which deals with foreign relations. 
And the assumption in foreign relations often is that it's states are interacting with each other or governments are interacting with each other because of geopolitical or economic interests. Um, but I found that probably 80, 90% of what I see going on in countries like Uzbekistan or Tajikistan is driven by domestic politics, elite jockeying for power, uh, how, do, how do regimes preserve themselves. Um, and so if, if Russia is doing something, uh, or China, or the United States, or Iran, uh, the, the, the primary considerations by these governments is how do we protect ourselves uh, from internal threats that could be used or take advantage of these external actions. So um, uh, I don't know how many, uh, have to show of hands, how many of you follow Uzbekistan uh, to some degree? Okay. So interestingly, um, uh, a couple of years ago, the president's daughter um, started tweeting up a storm about attacking her the chief uh, top government ministers. She had uh, she was the the elder daughter. She had lived in the United States for a while and came back to Uzbekistan and started using her connections to as the daughter of the president to establishing a very wide-ranging business empire within the country. Um, and, and I mean, the fact that she's a woman, you know, raises a bunch of interesting gender questions in a country in, in a country like Uzbekistan, um, because she was competing with a lot of with with male ministers and male elites. But nobody could touch her, so she could tweet, you know, at the finance minister or the head of the national security service. Saying they're they're corrupt and this is these this is what I know about them and they couldn't respond, so eventually this got out of hand and I think what happened is that the security service decided to push this to a crisis by feeding information to uh, foreign governments where and she had been involved in uh, uh, corrupt practices with the Swedish Finnish telecommunications. Uh, company Teleosinera, uh, taking a $350 million bribe in order so they would have 3G access to Uzbekistan, all money funneled through a one of her associates in uh, some shell company in Gibraltar, and, and there are a whole series of these. So right now there are a whole number of, of, of governments uh, that are have cases against her, investigations, including the, the United States government. Um, but there's nothing, once that information is out there, there's nothing that the, her father or anyone in the Uzbek government can do about it. But he can think, okay, did, they, did my advisors do this because my daughter was misbehaving? Or, um, or could they have handled it another way? And I think he understood that his daughter was was not was, was had gotten out of hand, but had no there was no tradition of reining her in. Um, 
And eventually, she was put under house arrest and has remained city arrest. Really, she's allowed to travel around Tashkent, but not can't leave the country. Um, and so, I think that the Uzbek government's approach is: well, these are international investigations. The, the, the Karimov needs to show that he has a lot of um, that, that that he's not going to let something like this get out of hand and allow foreign governments to maybe work with his own advisors or for, for those advisors to try to get ahead within the system by working with those external powers. Um, so there's a, there's a tendency among the more authoritarian Central Asian governments to sort of circle the wagons whenever there's an external threat. But it's really primarily focused on making sure the elites do not see, smell weakness and, and act on that. Um, so whether they're color revolutions in um, Kyrgyzstan, Ukraine, or Georgia 10 years ago, whether there are uh, you know, a bunch of regimes and uh, governments in the Middle East that are being toppled, and there's a, you know, a message of uh, regime change coming out of Washington, um, whether there's ISIL showing up in Afghanistan, whether Russia is invading, t annexing Ukraine, uh, Crimea, and, 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 and uh, fomenting conflict in eastern Ukraine. Um, all of these things, um, the, the tendency is to just circle the wagons and tighten up the ship. And so that hasn't been loosened um, uh, over the years. I mean, I think it's just getting tighter and tighter in most cases. What hasn't gotten tighter, for example, is uh, the Uzbek government has started to engage in a charm offensive with Washington because they are afraid that uh, if Washington leaves, loses interest in Central Asia, uh, they won't have anyone to balance Russia. And Uzbekistan has taken a rather independent uh, position vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia as much as they can. Uh, they're also concerned about Chinese growing Chinese economic influence in the region. So it's important for all of these countries to be able to balance. Uh, so. Um, Another way that um, I've, I've tried to use my anthropology, anthropology or academic background, um, as I've already uh, mentioned before, is to turn the lens on the Department of State itself and to see how different parts of the State Department engage uh, with each other. Uh, what is the language they use to draw boundaries to, to um, around uh, what's you know, respecting sovereignty, um, uh, internal, external affairs. Uh, going back to when I was in the Religious Freedom Office, um, because much of the State Department saw us as, because the, the Religious Freedom Office, which was created in 1997, uh, 98 by a, 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 an act of Congress, they, written initially by, uh, uh, promoted by a conservative uh, Christian Republicans, they saw this 
they associated that, projected that onto the Religious Freedom Office. So if I went on a trip to an embassy, visited an embassy for a couple of weeks in, in Egypt or Turkey, and, and officers, foreign service officers who hosted me there admitted at the end of that trip that they saw, they thought a religious fanatic was on the way from Washington. Um, and I would always say to them, what would, what would a, a, um, a liberal atheist Jew be doing in an office like this if that were the case? Um, that usually shut them up. Um, and and um, I felt very comfortable in that office because eventually it was 99 votes in the Senate that, that supported that need for the State Department to focus more on religion and not compartmentalize religion as something um, that you don't address and that you feel awkward about talking about. And there were so many interesting dynamics around religion, um, especially in the aftermath of 911. Um, this needed to be uh, aired. It needed to be talked about within the, within the building, as we call it. Um, and how do you, but then there's the question of how do you integrate religion into foreign policy? Um, not promote religion, but invoke um, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or the, the uh, UN, the International Covenant on uh, the Civil Rights, um, and say, look, your government signed on to this back in 1940, whatever, 1950. Um, so this is part of the uh, part of the range of issues that any government can engage with you on. Um, and if that seems like interfering, um, you always say, well, who gets to determine that? If the government of Saudi Arabia doesn't like Washington talking about, or the State Department talking about religion, um, and they would often invoke where the, the custodians of Mecca and Medina, um, you say, well, you have people in your country who are talking about it. Um, it's not just freedom for Christians and Sikhs and Buddhists uh, in Saudi Arabia who are there as guest workers. It's also Shia or the majority, many Sunni Muslims who do not um, like the policies the official policies of the government, a particular interpretation of Islam. So um, there's no reason uh, to, to draw the line there. Um, and then shifting from policy to an analysis, um, the nice thing about the bureau that I work in is that it's perhaps the most open part of the intelligence community. Now there are 16, 17 different intelligence agencies, some of them very specialized. Only a few of them do sort of the kind of analysis, um, the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and our bureau at the State Department do the kind of analysis that um, you're looking at all issues uh, within a country or within a region. Um, and I think there's been, off, there's been a tendency to just focus on countries and 
there's a, there are a lot of there's so many transboundary issues and specializations that need to be addressed. And I think um, this isn't just a problem within the State Department and the US government, but trying to be able to deal with transnational issues and transregional issues beyond the, the, the way a particular institution is structured. Um, how do you do that? So I look at uh, Islam in the region societally uh, in Central Asia, but in the former Soviet Union. I also look at uh, labor migration. Um, so there are millions, as many of you know, millions of Central Asian labor migrants who go work in Russia. Uh, some of them become immigrants. Some, of, Most of them go back and forth. Um, there's been increasing reports of recruitment among migrant communities in Russia to go to Syria and Iraq whether to join the Islamic State or other groups fighting against the Assad regime. Or, or, and so being able to talk to people who are covering all the, and know who's covering all the different aspects of this issue within these very um, sometimes regimented, uh, you know, different separate pockets or stovepipes within uh, the intelligence community or the State Department is is something that um, uh, is important to be able to get to know uh, how to do. Um, let me talk about um, a couple of other things of, of being an academic in or pursuing academic uh, kinds of research in Washington while working at the State Department. So I mentioned I had this sabbatical, this was in 2008-2009, and uh, the topic that I proposed was to look at where Central Asians go abroad to study Islam, and when they come back, what happens to them in these very uh, uh, secular, in, in particularly Central Asian uh, definition of secular, but very, in, in regime governments that are very suspicious of religion um, and don't recognize foreign degrees, especially in religion. Um, so I looked at where people from Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, who went to Turkey and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Iran to study Islam for any number of years. And so I did some field work um, uh, in some of those countries interviewing people who had gone abroad or were actually were studying abroad. And then at the end of that year, I wrote a, uh, a paper published um, at, probably familiar with uh, Seiss, John, John Hopkins Seiss has a Silk Road Studies series of occasional papers. Um, and I wrote a paper that was not, would not be necessarily recognized as a uh, typical anthropology journal kind of paper. It was something that I wanted to be accessible not only to policymakers, but also to uh, Central Asians, many of the Central Asians I had met with um, and interviewed when I was in the region, including sending it to the, um, the Uzbek foreign minister. Um, I didn't get a response, but that's fine. Um, so finding a way to write for the audience that uh, 
around you who's, who's most who, who you want to get something out of this uh, is is really important. And I've done some workshops with the Social Science Research Council or IREX International uh, Research and Exchanges Board um, on writing for policy audiences versus uh, for academic audiences. And it's very tricky, and most of the people who participate in those uh, pre-dissertation, dissertation, or post-dissertation workshops have not had been forced to think about how do you translate these uh, their conclusions and findings into something that is policy relevant. Um, and that's a lot harder to do if you're writing about 19th century Russian literature, but um, for a lot of the more contemporary. And so I'm not sure that everyone should be forced to do that. But there are, there's a lot of work that anthropologists do, certainly, that doesn't, that is policy relevant, but uh, anthropologists are not forced to make it, find a way to articulate that. And I think that's, um, that's really important. If, it, if that doesn't happen, then uh, you, you often are talking to your own community only, which maybe that's the best way to get an academic job. But given that more than 50% of anthropology PhDs aren't getting academic jobs, it's important to have that training in advance. Um, so I really uh, think that's an important uh, skill to be able to, to have. Um, and hope that departments are encouraging their students to do that. And if they're not, um, maybe there are other resources to draw on. Um, and then there was a study, uh, I'm going to stop in a couple of minutes and be happy to take your questions. There was a study, uh, a, a, an ad published in the uh, American Associa uh, Anthropology Association newsletter about five or six years ago. It was put in by the CIA and the ad was saying we have fellowships, language study fellowships, and you're welcome, you know, just advertising that as an opportunity to study a language. And there was an uproar in the anthropology community uh, because why are why is our newsletter publishing a announcement from the CIA? There's been a long history of of social scientists working with uh, you know the CIA in abroad um, and uh, for nefarious ends and participating psychologists working uh, in, with, uh, in the CIA to, to, on, on uh, how, to, uh, how best to torture, how to assess the results of the effects of, of certain kinds of torture and other abuses. So we don't want to have anything to do with this. So this actually pr prompted a, uh, a debate within the anthropology community. Um, and it create, they created a committee to look at, to reassess the ethics of anthropologists as a community. And it then led to a, uh, an edited volume where, because the, the, the this was so contested, this was so controversial, and people were talking past each other, you had a panel on anthropologists in, in the military, or anthropologists in uh, security, at an anthropology 
conference, people would be screaming at them. And, and you could not have a, a rational, reasonable debate. So they created this, this idea of this volume where there would be a debate within the volume and it would be a safe space. I know that's, <laughs> um, has a different connotation uh, in the last week or so, um, to have this debate. So they invited anthropologists who were working, either teaching uh, military academies, uh, who were engaged in controversial projects like um, the um, on the ground, in being embedded with uh, with mil the military in Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, human terrain uh, projects, um, people like myself just working as analysts, so in intelligence, security, and military establishments. And so we do a there'd be a little biography of us. It's called Anthropologists in the Security Scape, and we would write about our experience. Uh, short essay, and then the editors would come back and comment on that, and then we'd comment on the editors. So it's kind of a, 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 a novel approach. Um, and uh, I think there needs to be more of that, but, but um, the, the kinds of debates that, I don't know where it's gone most recently in, in, in the discipline of anthropology, but it's, um, it's something that I wanted to engage in because I was not, I was somebody who continued to try to anthropologize where I was working. Where some anthropologists, they get a job in the government or wherever, World Bank or wherever they go and they leave their anthropology behind and this is a new career. And that's certainly one option. Uh, but I still wanted to be able to apply anthropology and, and, and the, the, uh, the tools that I learned to the institutions that I was working in. Um, and so turning the lens back on anthropologists and saying, why are you drawing the, the, the boundary of what's uh, legitimate uh, for study? People who, are, you know, people who are saying, we should not be involved with the military, with the government at all. We should, because um, you know, it's, we're, we don't want to be compromised. We don't want to take money from them. We don't want to you know, be working with the US government and, and then also doing field work. And then if it gets out that we are associated with the government, uh, that it could endanger our, our, our informants, um, which are, that's certainly a legitimate issue, but it was very black and white. Um, and these are also people who would be taking Title VIII research grants. Um, or involved in, in other ways. And so, you know, this anthropologist is supposed to be asking questions and, and challenging these boundaries, and that just was not happening in this debate. And, and the most extreme people were saying, you know, there's this monolith, monolithic entity, the, the military industrial complex meets the government, and we don't want to have anything to do with that. So um, I have just advocated thinking more deeply about that and what is ethically questionable, but what, um, and that needs to be thought about, but what can be done? Because we need to understand all aspects of our society and our government, and we need to be able to work within these institutions. And there are ways of doing that 
um, even within, given the restrictions of classified information, you can work. I mean, AAAS uh, fellowships allow, give you an opportunity to work for a year or two um, in many of these institutions. And yes, there are certain things you can't write about, but there are lots of things that you can, that you can do. I mean, years ago, uh, doing anthropologists doing work in the United States on anything other than Native Americans was not acceptable. That was maybe the realm of sociologists, but not anthropologists. You had to go abroad had to do your field work abroad. Now that's broadened, uh, fortunately, um, and there are all kinds of topics, U.S.-based. Um, but um, you know, looking at you know, you know, universities and uh, culture in universities and, and, and middle class life and um, a lot of, uh, of, of, of topics that are closer to home. Um, so let me stop there. Um, I'm happy to take uh, as many questions as we have time for. And uh, thank you for listening. Classified information. Obviously, I can't. Um, I can't speak publicly about what I've read or heard through classified channels. Um, but there's a lot that is out there. In fact, I would say that I know that some of the best analysts uh, that I know working on Central Asia and Washington, who don't work for the government and don't have access to classified information. Are just are producing top analysis without it. Um, now, there are details that are helpful uh, from reading classified information, but in terms of the overall picture, 
the, 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 the uh, relationships and how, how certain one government or elites work. Um, for Tajikistan, uh, Jesse Driscoll at University of uh, California, San Diego, uh, he did all this research among uh, Civil War warlords and showing how the patronage system uh, has, has uh, continued uh, well past the Civil War to, to today and informs the way the government works there. Um, he's, he doesn't have access to classified information. So, um, so that's not a handicap, not having access to it. Um, as far as uh, the clearance process, um, I've never had, I've given public talks, substantive talks, I've taught courses, I've never had anybody tell me, have me change something. But I do have to get it cleared by relevant country or regional uh, office public affairs um, in my own bureau, nobody has ever told me to change what I said. Now, maybe I'm a really excellent self-censor, um, <laughs> but I don't comment. I know not to comment on, on US policy. Um, I can say, look, as I will tomorrow in my talk, these are factors that I think might continue to keep the US engaged in Central Asia. I'm not saying that they will, and I'm not saying that people in Washington, that that's the official policy. And I, I could describe that a little bit. But as we often say in our, uh, in, our, in our bureau, we don't do us, we do them. So in terms of what we're looking at, we're, we're saying this is how it's, things are going to play out in that country. So I haven't had a problem, it hasn't constrained what I've worked on, and I've never worked on you know, the, what's good or bad about US policy. And there was a guy in our, um, in our bureau who, he was the uh, U, uh, British analyst a number of years ago, and he thought he was off the record. Uh, he gave a talk at, at SICE, Johns Hopkins in Washington. Uh, this was back in, in the Bush years, and he said, he called Tony Blair Bush's poodle. <laughs> now the British press was there, and it splashed all over the British press. And the State Department analyst says, now nobody wants to be in a position. Um, and he was punished in certain ways, although he also ended up being the same person who was arrested and convicted for spying, for sending uh, classified documents to Cuba. I mean, totally unrelated, maybe, I don't know, but um, you have to be careful. Um, and I don't, we don't talk to the press. I mean, unless I'm friends, personal friends with somebody in the press, and I don't talk to people at embass uh, foreign embassies unless uh, I have the desk, because they'll often ask, well, what's the US going to do thinking about doing or what the policy is. I don't want to talk, say what the policy is. It's boring to say what it is. I want to know what's going on there and in the, in the dynamics of the relations. So if they ask that question, I just ask the country desk officer to you just spew out the, the, the dry policy language. Um, so I don't have to do that. Like wipe my hands of that, I don't want to do it anyway. Um, in terms of single, single country work, um, and being able to scale up, um, what, what exactly were you 
Oh, just, like sometimes, um, I don't know, I've, I've just been thinking about uh, this sort of uh, ways that sometimes when you do more fine-grained qualitative work, you're focusing on a particular community or maybe a country, but then, and you like get super specialized and trained as an academic in that language and that culture and that literature and so forth and the politics there. Um, and then the prospect of sort of transferring those skills to a government job where you're, you've got, you're at a regional desk, you're not, you're not just the country person, you've got to sort of cover the whole region. Sure. So just wondering yeah. like how that, including the language piece, how you sort of, maybe in your own career, how you've seen that sort of skill set be expanded or transferred. So, I did my narrow mahala research uh, as a graduate student. And then I came to the State Department and I worked on religious freedom, not in Central Asia. And I was kind of glad because I didn't want to work on human rights issues in a region that I might want to return to working on um, for obvious reasons. Uh, plus, it, it seemed a little bit, um, yeah, it was too close to home and it wasn't broad enough or rich enough given my own background. So I worked on it in the Middle East, and so I learned a lot about, and it was actually much of the Muslim world initially because we were a small office. So that actually, in the end, informed when I went and started working as an analyst on Central Asia again, not only was I looking at um, government policies, foreign relations with those countries, how the elites work, things that I never touched as an anthropologist because I was looking at the community level, and I shunned talking to officials. Um, now I had a, a different way of, I, I had to work on that, but it was it was through a different lens, and that, that was fine, it was interesting, and it's fascinating to me. Um, plus, having had that experience working on uh, religious issues in the Muslim world, especially in the post-911 context, that gave me a great context for thinking about Central Asia's emergence out of the Soviet Union uh, and the transnational ties with its neighbors to the south and to the west um, that hadn't existed before. So that's really what informed that year, that project when I had that sabbatical to look at those transnational ties. And I don't know if I would have come up with it and formulated it the way I did if I hadn't had that um, broader experience. So that's. Is that scaling down or scaling up? Maybe a little bit of both. Um, so that was very helpful. And in terms of the languages, well, my Uzbek has gotten rather rusty um, since the days when I was doing my field work. Um, uh, I use Russian. Uh, most of my reading is in English and Russian. Um, and I really should you know, brush up on my Uzbek or learn Tajik, Farsi. But, um, just need to find the time to do that. But it is important, uh, especially because Russian is just the, the use of Russian and the fluency of Uzbeks and Tajiks, especially in Russian, has just uh, declined since, in, since independence. Even though there are millions of them going to Russia to work, they're often in enclaves where they speak their own languages anyway. So if they know Russian, it's just to get around on the streets, the, the vast majority of them. Uh, those who have higher levels of education, of course, uh, are more fluent. Uh, but that's something that I've noticed has really changed over the last 24 or 5 years. Um, Thank you. Sure. 
I was going to ask, you spent about half the time in the State Department and the Bush administration, about half under Obama. Does that make any difference, including differences, not policy, mm -hmm. you know, obvious, but, uh, but rather style, how they use your research, uh, you know, how the State Department is organized you know, from the top down? Yeah, no, good question. Um, I haven't felt that it affects, has affected me that much. If I were working on um, uh, in some of the science uh, offices on um, contraception um, or climate change, um, it certainly could have made a difference. Working on religious freedom uh, did not, it didn't seem to affect it. I was comfortable with the way we were articulating those issues and the way we had to articulate them. Um, and then as an analyst working in both uh, administrations, um, again, I mentioned that firewall earlier. It, they don't, there hasn't been that, at least on Central Asia, um, it hasn't made a difference. Um, now more than the kind of administration it's often been the sort of the exigencies of the time. If, you know, the, if the United States needs Central Asian authoritarian government's cooperation and getting uh, supplies to support operations in Afghanistan, I don't think the administration makes any difference on that. Um, they might be just either way might be more willing to overlook uh, uh, some of the abuses in order for that to happen, and you can look at you know at any period in those terms. So um, they ignore your research for um, doesn't matter which. Well, I mean, I I, I don't know I I don't know what they're you know who's when the Secretary of State reads what I write and when. He or she doesn't. Um, we don't get feedback. No, um, no. I mean, we 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 get feedback uh, sometimes from people at lower levels of the policies, or an assistant secretary, the head of the bureau, um, and, and on down. The people we interact with most often, but nobody writes, "Good job, David." You know, the secretary. <laughs> I mean, but we do. No, we do get some feedback. It's um, no, no dialogue. Well, we don't see them, and they're too busy to write notes on everything. And they're reading, you know, hundreds of reports and documents, you know, every week. Or, so, um, but occasionally, you know, there are briefers, people who brief them or brief the president, President's Daily Brief or others, and they will, if there was a discussion, I mean, sometimes it's as it's, it's as ludicrous as um, you know, nodded gravely, or you know, something like that. Just to keep, I mean, that would be the extent of the feedback, or or led to a in, involved discussion. Your what you wrote, your report, um, sparked a discussion among the top policymakers in the U.S. government. I mean, that's that's not bad, right? Um, so um, it can really range. Most of the time, we don't we don't hear, but um, we just keep plotting away. <laughs> um, 
Other questions? Yeah. A general question about studying uh, organized crime. Uh, there are people at this university who study trafficking in human beings and uh, narcotics and so forth. Right. So what's, how is that done? Where, who, who does it? What are the hazards? Can the, can the, does this take place in the academic world, the ones you've seen, if it takes place in the government, what agencies do that? Right, so um, our bureau has a, an office. So we have our regional offices, uh, and we also have functional offices that mirror the functional bureaus in the department. So there's an office that deals with terrorism, um, uh, narcotics, and crime. So these are, and they look at a much broader, they don't just look at Uzbekistan, they have to look at a much, since it's a narrower issue, set of issues, they look maybe Eurasia, um, which is a lot to look at, but it's just the way it is. Um, um, and then there are policy bureaus that work on these. How do we, what governments do we engage with to counter uh, trafficking? There's a trafficking in persons office in the, in the State Department that focuses on that, just like the Religious Freedom Office focuses on religious freedom. Um, there, it, there's, there's a uh, counterterrorism office a bureau in the State Department um, that looks at how do we, on the policy side, what country governments can we engage with and how on counterterrorism issues. Um, and with organized crime, usually the Treasury, Department of Treasury takes the lead on that. Department of Treasury is the one uh, that um, designates, is the final say in designating terrorist organizations, but they also designate organized crime leaders. Um, they've done a lot in the last two to three years on Eurasian organized crime uh, leaders and making that public. Um, does, does that answer your question? Um, could you speak to them a little bit more about usajobs.gov? You mentioned it a little bit, but I think it's important. It is, no. yeah. <laughs> so I know people who have applied for jobs that were written for them and been rejected <laughs> because it's this dysfunctional, largely dysfunctional system. And this is different from the point I made earlier. Um, if you're applying USA jobs, as I know it, um, you will. There are often multiple choice questions, and then maybe in some cases short answer, short essays, um, it asking about your skills uh, and experience, and what you need to do, as absurd as it, as it is, in that is to plagiarize as many of the keywords from the job announcement over and over and over again so that the, the computer system will pick up those keywords and know that you must be a good candidate. So there's an example of happy plagiarism, um, <laughs> legal plagiarism. Um, but that's just the way it is. Now, they've talked about revamping that whole system. Uh, I don't know if it's, you know, it's broken and they're breaking it again in a different way. I don't know. but. It's, it's a very frustrating system because you could put a lot of energy into these jobs and then also find out that uh, this was slated for somebody. Um, 
but they, there are some positions that are open to everybody. There are some that are only open to people with certain levels of clearances who already have them. So that means they're already in the government um, or contractors. Um, and then there are some that are just open to the State Department. But of course, the latter two you won't see because it's not advertised widely. But um, it's, um, that's the way it is. And so that's why I was pushing these fellowship programs because um, at least you know what you're applying for. Maybe you could mention the PNF then as well. Yeah, I don't know a lot about that. Um, Presidential Management Fellows program. It's a lot larger than the AAAS program. Um, and it's you, you can have a master's, not a, you don't need a PhD for that. But you have to apply within a certain number of years after getting the master's, uh, I think. Um, and that's a, I think it's a three-year program. Uh, there are a number of people in our office who, who came that way and stayed. Uh, you can convert to a civil service position or join the Foreign Service afterwards. PMF program is interesting because it requires you to do rotations. So you maybe have a home office that you're based in, but then you'll do three months uh, in another, either another agency or department, another office within the State Department or whatever you're, wherever you're located. It's not just the State Department. Um, or three months at an embassy abroad. So you have to do a certain number of rotations within that period. Um, so that's good experience for just getting a taste. Um, and for the AAAS program or pro uh, programs like it, uh, even if you're not working on you know, what you're most passionate about or what you think you're most passionate about because you've been trained in it, um, it's, um, it's it, not only is it an entree into into the US government and the Washington world, but it certainly just gives you that experience. Um, and you can leave that job and move on to something else uh, or leave, leave the US government. So at some point, I remember, maybe half of the AAAS fellows would uh, return to academia if they had a position to return to. Uh, other ones just saw that as a stepping stone to working in the government. And um, I forgot to mention this. Uh, well, I, I mentioned before that I was planning to be, you know, work as an academic in a university, and I never even considered working in the U.S. government or at the State Department. Um, but I ended up there, and it's worked out very well uh, for me. In fact, when I was working on uh, U.S. Uh, assistance to Central Asia as, as, as an anthropologist, I thought I would end up at USAID. Um, but in fact, uh, the State Department, the Religious Freedom Office, just that that was turned out to be much more interesting at that time. Yeah. So sort of a follow-up question: uh, Would you say that most of the people that you work with came in through these programs? The majority of them came in with master's degrees, PhDs. So are the people that you're working with following a similar trajectory to yours, or is there variation in how people get there? Wide variation. Um, our office is not typical of the State Department because our bureau isn't because most people are civil servants. So most of the people who work at the State Department, uh, most of the American citizens, are um, are foreign service uh, who are well who work on the regional bureaus, the country desks, and at the embassies. 
Uh, it might be half and half altogether. Um, but, um, uh, I mean, in my office, since most people are civil servants, what it means is that our bureau values people who already have extensive experience in the languages and in the regions and have that deep expertise uh, on what they're working on. Um, that's not the case in other intelligence agencies, and it's generally not the case at the State Department. People move around a lot. Um, so um, the nice thing about working for our bureau at the State Department is, in addition to the, the flexibility and the, the intellectual freedom that we have, we also have are you know sitting in the same building as policymakers, and we know what they're thinking, instead of way out in Virginia or something. Um, and um, and we're with colleagues who uh, have a lot of expertise and are um, are respected within the Washington community by policymakers as well as. Uh, in the intelligence community for having that extensive experience. So, I mean, I've been there for 10 years, and the I'm still below, the average is over 10 years of people in our, staying in our bureau, and usually in this, on the same country. So um, you can't say that about a lot of places in Washington, actually. People do move around every two years or so. You know, some of it has to do with the promotion structure. Others just, you know, for finding, you know, finding their way. But um, so that's why it's a good place for an academic. Other questions? Yeah. Could, could you talk a bit about the role of think tanks in the policy process, and to what extent the government uses the uh, the work they produce? Uh, versus their own work? Mm -hmm. uh, sure, good question. Um, so I thought a lot about working, what it would be like to work at a think tank. And when I first came to Washington, I wanted to. Um, the problem, think tanks are often, unless you, you're at the Open Society Foundation, the source, you, you have to raise money from somewhere. And then sometimes that compromises the, uh, the product, it can. Um, and one example, there was a recent article about the Carnegie Center in Moscow um, trying to survive uh, through the current climate there. Um, and they fired a lot of the, the more uh, open critics of Russian policy and of Putin there. Uh, these are mostly Rus Russian scholars who work there. Uh, and that has also affected Carnegie, the Carnegie Endowment's uh, base in, in, in Washington. So they've been criticized for that publicly um, because they want to keep that center open in Moscow, but they don't want to antagonize. Um, you know, there's a whole range of think tanks from you know, left wing to right wing to libertarian. Um, some of them are used in certain administrations more actively. I remember during the, after the invasion of Iraq, uh, the Heritage Foundation, anyone who, you know, their, their resumes were like flying, you know, up, up, up the ladder into the ranks of, of uh, you know, 
all the people who are being hired and sent out to Iraq to maybe some you know, fresh out of college, out of Yale grad who you know, had some connection to the Heritage Foundation was sent to Iraq to set up the stock market. Um, so there was a lot of youthful energy in that, in that endeavor. Um, in other cases, um, it, it really ranges. So in terms of what people listen to, if there's a really close connection be between someone high up, like Minister, uh, uh, Secretary of Defense or Secret Secretary of State, to somebody at a think tank, uh, they might become a conduit of ideas. But the State Department also has a uh, policy planning office. Um, and they write policy papers in a way similar to what think tanks do um, on foreign policy issues. Um, and again, if the sec secretary doesn't always listen to them, if there's a close bond between the secretary and the head of that office, then those papers might go up. So you can't, it really changes over time. It's hard to generalize. Um, maybe also if you could speak to them a little bit about the uh, practical side of things. Uh, what sort of CS level would someone with an MA come, go into with a PhD? How would languages potentially affect yeah. going up the ladder, that sort of stuff? So AAAS fellows, and I'm speaking from personal experience, come in with the GS-13. Now, I don't know what that is now. You could look online to see what the GS scale is. Um, uh, no, I'm sorry. We came in with the 12 with a guarantee of going with 13. And this is on a 15 grade scale with all kinds of intermediary steps in between. Um, PMFs with a master's, I think, come in at a 11 or something like that. Um, but then I guarantee 12 um, or something. Right. Like so these things are fairly explicitly structured. Um, um, Just to clarify for people, this is the salary scale you're talking about, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, thanks. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you're working as a contractor, and more and more people are contractors working in the greater Beltway, Washington area, you do get paid more. Um, but you also don't have uh, certain benefits or, or options of applying to certain positions. Um, so, but I mean, I found that the government salaries are generally, um, at least if you're starting out you know, with a PhD, um, have, are, you know, you can, you can live on that in the Washington area. I mean, it's an expensive place to live in Washington, um, but it's it's stable. It's uh, you have job security. Think tanks, which are often run on soft money, if you like writing grants, think tanks might be the place for you. But if you're always having to worry about where your money is going to come from, and if you can't bring in that money, they'll um, they might let you go. So it's not quite as secure a job. On the other hand, you can publish publicly as much as you want. Um, I mean, it's generally encouraged. So 
you know, there's some trade-offs there. Any last questions? It looks like we're just about out of time. So anyway, thank you for this conversation. Thank you.